Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Like an angel, walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise, or yes, you are devil in disguise. You fool me with your kisses, you cheated and you schemed. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update for, um, well, it's not for anything, but it's being recorded on October 18, 2020. And a little different episode today. Uh, Yesterday, I gave a talk at um, an online conference for something called The Gray Faction, which is a uh, project by the Satanic Temple that keeps track of satanic panic practices and um, kind of makes people aware of the history of the satanic panic which is uh, it's pretty good work actually um, you know this the satanic panic moral panic went down in the 80s and 90s you know basically creating this this myth that there is you know roving bands of of murderous satanists ruining people's lives and abusing people and creating uh, multiple personalities. Of course, this is all fiction, but it sold a lot of books and made a lot of people rich and ruined a lot of people's lives. And, and the problem with a moral panic is it, you know, it seems to bubble up from the unconscious or wherever. Um, you know, it seems to kind of bubble up, and when it goes away... It, it goes away. It disappears. People don't, you know, reckon with it. And the underlying root causes are still there. So all these people, let alone all these cultural forces that created this havoc, are still out there and could come back anytime. When I first met um, Lucian Greaves, the uh, co-founder and head of the Satanic Temple, we were we were having this conversation that was basically like, when is the satanic panic going to come back? Is it going to come back, or, or are we just worried about these kind of stragglers, and um, you know these people, these doctors that still have careers after ruining people's lives, you know, giving them false uh, multiple personality diagnoses and making them believe that, you know, they were molested by the pedophilic satano industrial complex. That was only two years ago, and it seems like forever ago, because now it's 2020, and looks like the satanic panic is back. It's called QAnon, and it's a political movement, uh, you know, has echoes of the satanic panic. It's kind of different, kind of the same. I'm going to play the conference. Um, I'm going to play my speech for you after this introduction. Basically, I spoke about this group called The Finders, which... 
I've written about in the past. It's a very famous conspiracy theory. It's not in famous at all outside of conspiracy circles. Basically, it was a communal group which in the 80s had this uh, Satanism, Satanic cult label attached to them and mayhem ensued from there. And I'm, the talk also covers a guy named Ted Gunderson, a former FBI agent who became a like, professional conspiracy theorist. He spread a lot of the things that QAnon, a lot of these beliefs that QAnon promotes these days were uh, Ted Gunderson, promoted by Ted Gunderson in the 90s. And then uh, also an important point is that conspiracy theories are pretty much inherently political and there's a fascist right wing right now that is using them and uh the demagogue in chief i i'm sorry to say is really just a symptom of the problem <laughs> so it's like you know he may be voted out in november but this problem is just getting started and that's my little rambling preamble and without further ado let's check out the the presentation i made My name's Lenny Flatley. Actually, my name's Joseph L. Flatley, but I'm known in Satanist circles as Lenny. Um, I'm a journalist and a podcaster, and uh, my main focus is conspiracy theories and culture, and how they impact culture, and how they're screwing up politics these days. Um, a couple years ago, I wrote a book called Satan Goes to the Mind Control Convention, that some of you may have heard of, because uh, it goes into ISSTD and Gray Faction. And um, it was at an ISSTD conference, I think, two years ago that I met um, Evan and Lucian and all, you know, the Gray Faction crew, and really kind of set me on the course of, like, this, like, obsession I have with uh, <laughs> satanic panic and conspiracies and the reach that they've had from our recent past to the present. And, and this ISSTD story I, I was doing, it led me to a communal group called The Finders. Um, this was a commune, uh, 60s, 70s uh, commune based around D.C. And um, But 1987, they were just minding their own business, living their life, and they kind of crashed into the satanic panic head-on. So... So the Finders were a, 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 like I said, came into existence in the 60s, and they were based around a charismatic figure named Marion Petty. It was kind of a social laboratory. The group would try to find better ways to survive, raise children, relate to one another, and get the most out of life. They sh stayed away from the spotlight. They didn't care if anybody knew who they were or if anybody joined them. And really, there were only about 20 core members. And... Yeah, aside from this event in the in 1987 we're going to go into, the group fizzled out uh, in the 90s. Uh, definitely by the time the leader, Marion Petty, died in 2003. 
So in this talk, I'm going to introduce you to Petty and the Finders, address how the group came to intersect with the Satanic Panic, and um, talk about a former FBI agent named Ted Gunderson and the role he played in the Finders saga and in conspiracy culture in general. And then we're going to compare and contrast QAnon and contemporary far-right movements with what the Finders had to deal with in 1987. And uh, so ju just so you don't have to hear me read all night, I'm going to use some video clips. And uh, a lot of these are interviews from a movie that I'm producing about the Finders that were uh, filmed by the director, a guy named Tyler Rabbit. So I want to thank him for letting me use the clips. And a lot of this is stuff that nobody's seen before and nobody who's researched the Finders has come across. So you guys are in for a treat. Um, but first, the Finders, who were they? Uh, Marion Petty was born in Culpeper, Virginia in 1920. And uh, when he was 13, he convinced his parents to lie about his age so he could join the army. Apparently that was a thing that happened quite a bit in the eight days before computers. Um, I, I think the youngest ever uh, veteran, or the, at least the youngest veteran of World War II, American veteran, was a 12-year-old who enlisted in the Navy, and they found out when he got hurt that he was actually 12 years old and booted him. So it's definitely happened. Um, but Petty ended up in the Army Air Corps and then transferred to the Air Force when it was founded in 1947. Um, he stayed in the Air Force until 1956 when he retired as a Master Sergeant, and he never worked again after that. Just hung out, lived his life, uh, played with real estate, and uh, started a cult, basically, or a charismatic commune, I think. Um, Petty's experiments in communal living began while he was still in the Army. When he was stationed at the Pentagon and living in the D.C. area, he kept two apartments, and he kind of hosted a perpetual salon. Anybody who wanted to could show up. They could... He would learn from them or learn that he didn't like them. He... Uh, you know, it was just like a constant cast of characters that kind of scratched his itch for, you know, intellectual stimulation. Um, and then eventually him and his family purchased property in rural Nethers, Virginia. And it was here that he established a commune. He called it the Free State. And it was like his apartment. It was a natural outgrowth. Anybody could visit. They could um, stay for a day or a week or forever if they wanted to. Um, the only real rule was when you left the free state, you left it all behind. Hell, if you wanted to build a house, you could build a house on the property, but you had to leave it when you left. Um, it was definitely an idealist, an ideal, you know, an idealism there. But he also, he was a pragmatist and he was mischievous. And uh, this, I think, this anecdote really kind of clues us into Mary and Petty's character because he established the free state not on his property, but on the next-door neighbor's property. You know, he wanted to live with a bunch of hippies, but he didn't actually want them on his land. So, the free state experiment act eventually morphed into the finders um, in, like, 1969, 1970, around that time. Um... And it was a very loose group. It was pretty informal. Uh, the rules changed every day. Um, it was Everything was decided more or less by consensus, although uh, 
Petty was such a strong figure that he didn't, you know, that obviously he held sway. He was he was the man in charge. Um, But the Finders wasn't even its name. It was uh, a name given by the police in 1987 when they busted them. And, you know, it's the police. They needed a name. Um, And John Cohen is one of the few journalists that bothered writing about the Finders when they were still around and bothered to get the story right didn't fall for the whole satanic panic hysteria. So I'm going to play a couple clips now. The first is John Cohen kind of explaining the group. Then the next is next two will be uh, actual finders. Toby Terrell and Ranny Wynn will go into a little more detail. Uh, Toby will refer to Petty, the leader, as um, under the title or nickname, the Game Caller. So... I think it'll become clear what he's talking about as he talks. So here's the first clip. They were a commune, in essence, with a charismatic leader, Marion Petty, who uh, meshed philosophies from all sorts of places. And some of the philosophy was free love. Some of the philosophy was Zen Buddhist. Some of the philosophy was Marion Petty. Um, and like most charismatic leaders, he had bizarre rituals for the group that were indeed odd. Um, and the main ritual was playing games and everything was a game and that they would go off on games, uh, much as Mormons might go off on missions to learn things and then to bring knowledge back to the leader. I remember one day he called for, um, he got a whole bunch of us up in the attic and um, he called for each of us to take $500 and go somewhere and not double it till we came back. Um, did I say it wrong? Not come back until they had doubled it. <laughs> okay. And, and he called that game for me and the woman who was there at the time, whose name was Crystal Flights. He called for us to go to New York and not come back till we had doubled $500. And other people went to other cities. I don't remember who went specifically to other places. But that was a great adventure, and and we did. We went to New York. We had a wonderful time just moving around from place to place, not knowing where we were going to sleep the next night and ending up in many interesting places. And both of us getting jobs. I worked on Wall Street in a gold-trading firm, and... You know, it was just a, a great learning adventure. So that was a typical game. And I he, take it the goal wasn't to profit 500 bucks. What, what was the goal? Or was that, or was that the To goal? have some learning experiences would be the goal. I mean, he didn't set down a goal for it. But Petty's great art as the game caller was to, um, to be tuned in to some kind of a psychological situation in each of the people who were volunteered to him uh, and and to know an action that could be taken to bring to the surface that unconscious some something that would bring that to the surface and then you could deal with whatever it was in your unconscious so that's what it meant to be a game caller was to call a game call for you to do something that was going to provoke something out of your unconscious so you could deal with it. 
what were we all trying to accomplish? Um, I think that we felt uh, that we were experimenting with different social inventions of how can small groups of people live together and get along with each other and do something creative um, over the long haul. And uh, part of that is that you keep changing it. Anything that if you keep going with the same exact thing for too long, it will become stale. So that was part of it, was to experiment and keep changing and keep changing the experiment. Um, we were experimenting with uh, pretty close to total financial pooling in that nobody really had much in the way of any kind of private property. Um, we were experimenting with lifelong learning so that we always tried to incorporate learning something new in our activities. Um, we were experimenting with being very aware of the world around us uh, so we uh, you know, kept up with the news and the, um, the current books and ideas of the time. Uh, we were experimenting maybe more than anything else with human relationships and uh, how can we really get close to each other both in terms of a small group and one-on-one. -on -one. You know, when I, uh, when I discovered the group, it was through conspiracy theory material and I read so many conspiracy theories and so many outrageous claims and it was clear that nobody and people have made like entire careers off the back of the finders at least or you know reputations rather in like the conspiracy theory world and um it was clear that nobody ever actually tried to talk to one of them so you know or you know i mean or nobody was able to so i immediately started making phone calls and the first thing i and and I finally tracked down a finder. I found. I promised I wouldn't use his name, so I'm not going to use it here. But he, you know, his name came up in my research. I tracked down a website that was registered to him. I think so. I emailed the the uh, postmaster, and I got a call one day while I'm in a, in a lift, and from an like an unlisted number. And the guy wouldn't tell me who he was. He was just like, yo, you're looking into the finders. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking into the finders. And it was clear that this guy was the finder that I had, had tracked down. And um, immediately started talking about polyamory. And I don't know if, <laughs> if it's because that was just what he was into on that day or if that says something about the finders. But the finders definitely navigated gender roles in a unique way it was definitely there was definitely an element of free love um the poet novelist andre kadrescu who uh used to be on npr all the time he is dc based and uh, he met the finders in 84 and um the the finders that he met described the group as matriarchal um talking about strong women uh holding sway over weak men um, it was women's job to choose who their sexual partners are and when they, they would do that. And, uh, I mean, obviously there was no coercion. The men didn't have to, but, um, you know, it was a very female led situation. Um, 
I wouldn't call it matriarchal or matriarchy because obviously uh, Mary and Petty was at the top, you know, making these rules or making these suggestions. But, um, but you know, Mary and Petty was not a cult leader. He was not a micromanager. He kind of had people loved him. They they idolized him or were fascinated by him, and they let him set the tenor of things. But you know, the finders really kind of led you know, figured out their own way, their own rules. Um, but probably the most controversial aspect of how the finders lived their lives was how they raised children. Um, it was, it was done communally, very offhand. The, um, you know, parents weren't necessarily the, like the most important figure in their child's lives. And, you know, it was like a kibbutz, you know, for a good example of that, or maybe synonym would be a not-so-great example of that. But while it may not be the norm now, it definitely has been the norm in past cultures. And um, and and Marion was big on, Marion Petty was big on the fact that the way we educate our children sucks. Um, kids are just put in boxes and forced to conform and... The fact of the matter is kids do better, he th- he said, when they learn what they want to learn, when they want to learn how they want to learn it. So, like the whole idea that, uh, well, one of the one of the, <laughs> the finders I talked to, he, he, he described child rearing in the finders as a positive version of Lord of the Flies, which I think is pretty funny because I can't imagine an actual positive version of Lord of the Flies. But at any rate, how they raise children is very um, different, and and you can imagine where I'm going with this because of the whole save the children thing. They're the way they deal with their children is going to come back to bite them in the ass uh, very soon in this story. Um, yeah, but while all this was going on, the finders were staying under the radar. Uh, doing their own thing, kind of blissfully unaware of the satanic panic that was going on around them. And then... And and, and a big part of the satanic panic was a... Uh, was an FBI agent turned cult investigator that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with uh, named Ted Gunderson. So I'm going to roll the clip. Ted Gunderson. FBI veteran. Former head of the regional office in Los Angeles. Is there a network of these satanic murderers in this country, do you allege? I cannot say that there's a network of satanic murderers. I can say that based on information furnished to me by confidential sources and informants, based on interviews with dozens of uh, uh, survivors from the satanic uh, operations uh, through the years, satanic beliefs, etc., I can say that there is a network of these people across the country who are very active. Uh, they have their own rest and relaxation farm. Uh, they are in contact with each other. It ties in loosely to the drug operation. Uh, ties into motorcycle gangs, and it goes on and on. They have their own uh, people who are specialized in surveillances and photography uh, and in assassinations. After this commercial break, we're going to have the anatomy of a satanic crime, showing you why law enforcement has had such a difficult time coming to grips with the strange, shadowy world of satanic crime. Stay with us.
Yeah, so if you were looking for the polar opposite of Marion Petty, you couldn't do better than Ted Gunderson. He was a same generation, few years younger, born 1928. He graduated with a business degree from the University of Nebraska, and he joined the FBI right out of college in 1951. Not right out of college. He was actually a canned meat salesman at Hormel uh, for a small amount of time before he got into the FBI. And, um, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on FBI documents or not even necessarily very familiar with <laughs> FBI documents. But from what I've been able to gather from the FOIA requests that have been done from the FBI, uh, Gunderson's main qualification was that he like really looked the part. Um, and I've read thousands of pages of FOIA documents for Gunderson. And with mind-numbing regularity, you just come up across with some variation of Agent Gunderson is six feet tall, weighs 155 pounds. He presents an above-average appearance and exhibits good taste in clothing. And uh, whatever his qualifications, uh, Gunderson quickly rose through the ranks of the FBI, uh, eventually becoming Assistant Special Agent in Charge, or in FBI speak, ASAC. He was the ASAC of uh, New Haven, Connecticut office, uh, made the ASAC in 1965. And... Uh, one of the first things he was put in charge of was uh, Executive Order 10450 investigations. And uh, what this is is an executive order that was signed by uh, President Eisenhower in 1953 that barred homosexuals from from uh, working in any federal jobs. So Gunderson's main gig or one of his main gigs at the time was hounding homosexuals and outing them and get, getting them fired, taking away their jobs. Um, and when he wasn't busy persecuting homosexual homosexuals, uh, Gunderson's FBI file showed that he spent his time in New Haven developing informants among leftist groups like the SDS and the Panther black Panther party. Um, after New Haven, Gunderson went to Philadelphia and Memphis and Dallas, eventually taking charge of the Los Angeles FBI office in 1977. And then he uh, retired unexpectedly in 1979 after 28 years in the Bureau. Still not quite sure why he retired. There aren't too many good answers. Um, might have something to do with the fact that there was a lawsuit going down back in New Haven about some illegal wiretapping. Um, but he left in 79 and when he left, um, the LAPD chief, uh, Daryl Gates, the notorious racist and notoriously corrupt Daryl Gates wrote a glowing letter to the uh, FBI director, basically talking about how great it was to work with Ted Gunderson and, you know, said whoever replaces him is going to have big shoes to fill. So that's the kind of characters that looked up to Gunderson, um, then after leaving the Bureau, he became a private investigator. His first gig was a, as a defense investigator for Jeffrey McDonald. Um, real briefly, McDonald was a Green Beret stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, who killed his family in 1969 and then kind of dressed up the crime scene to make it look like crazed hippies did it. I even think he had like a issue of Life magazine or Look magazine or Esquire or something that he... Um, 
about the Manson murders that investigators found when they were in his in his house that basically he used as the blueprint for for his you know hippie invasion um the army screwed up the investigation and um because it happened on an army base so so he got off free and he was free for 10 years before it became a a criminal matter in the in the civilian courts and uh ted gunderson's one of his first pi jobs or his first pi job was um was working for McDonald's and where McDonald tried to make people believe that it was like crazed hippies. Um, Ted Gunderson saw kind of one of the, an early example of like satanic crime and uh, tracked down Helena Stokely, who uh, we believe, you know, who he claimed was one of the murderers and um, really, uh, first made his bones as this uh, cult investigator on this like notorious uh, crime and then and then he went on from there to his career encompassed virtually every conspiracy theory of the 80s and the 90s he put himself at the center of uh, McMartin preschool um, the Franklin cover-up the Franklin community federal credit union scandal it was a corrupt uh, there were corrupt officers at this credit union in Omaha, Nebraska that went belly up, but there have been endless speculation that this was actually the center of a pedophilic child abuse ring run out of the White House or something. And then, you know, from there on, he's claiming the Oklahoma City bombing was conducted by the FBI. He's uh, talking about the New World Order and chemtrails. His, and his uncritical embrace of every and all conspiracy theories made him a darling of the right-wing militia movement and the New World Order crowd. Um, and he's also the person who gave the Finders a prominent place in conspiracy theory mythology. But before we get to that, we're going to have to talk about the Finders' arrest in 1987. So... What is known tonight is this. Authorities have the children and the two men accused of abusing those children and evidence that they may be only part of a larger, dreadful story. CBS News correspondent Rita Braver reports. Law enforcement authorities suspect they may have stumbled on an international child abuse ring when an anonymous call led police in Tallahassee, Florida to this park. Two well-dressed men were discovered with six filthy, ragged, insect-bitten children, aged two to six and a half. A passerby with a home video camera took these pictures as the men were arrested and booked for child abuse. The children were confused, said they'd been traveling for a long time in a van, stopping at camps. Today, police released these photographs, hoping to learn more about the six youngsters who said they didn't know where they came from or where they were going. But at least one of the six were sexually abused. The two men reportedly told police that children were being weaned from their mothers and taken to Mexico for a special school for brilliant children. Papers the men were carrying led to Washington, D.C., where police last night searched a residence used by a commune or cult known as the Finders. Um, the women are always pregnant and they, had, uh, they have a child and then they seem like they get uh, pregnant again. 
And there was another search at this finder's warehouse where law enforcement authorities said they found a photographic studio, a computer bank, and at least three large bags full of slides showing, according to one source, satanic, ritualistic activities involving torture, bloodletting, and sexually explicit acts involving children. Virginia police are now investigating a farm where the group reputedly brought children. Well, look, it looked like to me that was awful, you know, uh, uh, didn't weigh very much. Uh-huh. You don't think they were well cared for then? I think they were malnutritioned. No members of the finders were apprehended, but police say they do have some leads. The FBI and U.S. Customs Service have now joined the investigation, and officials say they're still trying to figure out exactly what is going on and how these and perhaps other children may be involved. Rita Braver, CBS News, Washington. These six children are at the heart of a bizarre tale of alleged abuse and possible devil worship. The arrests of two men in Tallahassee have touched off investigations from Florida to Washington, D.C. Douglas Ammerman and Michael Houlihan are charged with child abuse. Police say the children found with them were hungry, dirty, covered with insect bites, and there's evidence one child was sexually abused. In Madison County, Virginia, state police raided several locations linked to the finders and found nothing. Authorities are looking for two other vans, possibly carrying more children. And they're looking for answers to what the finders believe and whether those beliefs are criminal. And there you have it. Uh, that two-minute clip, now you know everything that anybody knows about the <laughs> that knows about the finders. Um, February 4th, 1987, uh, two adult males wearing you know, kind of shabby uh, business suits or formal clothing, uh, playing with six kids in a van, you know, with a, they have a van, they might be living out of the van, it has Virginia license plates. Neighbors saw this and for some reason immediately thought some sort of crime's happening. So, th- so they called the police, the police arrived, and the men were acting weird. They didn't want to answer any questions. And... They thought, well, we don't know what these kids are doing. We don't know what these adults are doing. We need to get to the bottom of this. So they arrested the the adults, took them to jail. Uh, one count each of uh, child abuse, I think, just so they had a charge, and then locked them away. Like judge judge gave them like ten or hundred thousand dollars bond, which is crazy. And then the kids, four boys and two girls, all under the age of seven, entered the entered the system. Um, and, you know, the police in Florida had to figure out if there was a, even a crime being committed. Did I mention this was in Tallahassee? So this was in Tallahassee. And police in Florida had to figure out if there was even a crime being committed. So they called the police in Washington and in Virginia. And it turned out Washington Metro PD had a had an informant who had been telling tales about how this horrible evil cult called the Finders that... um you know, worship Satan and their parents gave their children away and Metro PD in DC has just been looking for a chance to, to bust these guys. So now they had it. And, um, and you know, when Tallahassee heard that they went nuts. They're like, well, satanic cults, the use of children in rituals. They just started just saying the craziest shit um, to the news media through their spokesperson and the news media just repeated it like uncritically. So, and then, and then like, 
and then the the homes and the the buildings that the finders owned in DC were raided and evidence was confiscated um the most damning of all this so-called evidence was a uh, series of pictures labeled the execution of Henrietta and Igor um these were names of the goat, of goats that belonged to the finders and according to the police the pictures showed adults and children dressed in white robes committing an animal sacrifice of some sort. Um, I mean, the whole thing was a shit show. There were several law enforcement jurisdictions all trying to figure out what was going on. And that included the Customs Service, who were called in because at the time they were like the premier um, law enforcement agency uh, in, in, in tracking down child porn because it was like, the analog age and child porn tend to be printed overseas and come through the mail and um, the FBI. And then an FBI agent named Athena Varunas was assigned to this case. And she is like a cool lady. Um, I know hard to believe the FBI is going to be the good guy in this story, but an FBI agent is, you know, she, she almost immediately realized that the Satan worshiper angle was bullshit. And, uh, kind of got down to the bottom of it so here's another clip from tyler's movie featuring athena i was assigned this case i remember reading a communication i think it was a teletype and the teletype indicated that two men had been arrested with seven children in a park and i think it was tallahassee florida so um I made phone calls. I had the name of a detective, Bradley, uh, come to find out that Metropolitan Police was executing the search warrant over at this warehouse. The press was already there. This, it was in D.C. I remember it was a long building. The scene that greeted me was um, not a well-lit, long building. It seemed like there were a lot of books everywhere. Police were go- accumulating records. There, uh, there was a customs agent there. So I went and was examining these records. They said they had gotten some photographs, and I was looking through some of the documentation and records that they had discovered. And I didn't even know when this Satanist stuff started, but there were no pentagrams or pictures of the devil or any Satanist-type items in this warehouse or in the documents or anything that you would traditionally associate and even, you know, even hidden things. I didn't see anything at first glance. However, you have to gather all the evidence and then you have to sit down and go through it page by page and picture by picture. So um, I went back to the Washington field office and began to make arrangements to have agents go to the Metropolitan Police the next day, which I think was a Saturday, with me to go over all the documentation that uh, the police department seized. Um, Meanwhile, the media just began to come out with stories that these people were Satanists and devil worshipers and a cult and all this other kind of stuff. So I was getting phone calls from my bosses, you know, uh, what was going on, and I told them so far we don't have a kidnapping. I mean, I don't. We got to find out who these kids are, and who the parents are. So my mission was to find out who are these kids, what's going on, where are the parents, who are the parents, 
And did we, in fact, have a kidnapping? Did we have sexual exploitation of children? What did we have? And I still didn't know as of that first day. Uh, they, I, I remember looking at photographs and documents, and the photographs, children with white sheets on, and one might have had a knife at some point, but they had killed a goat. It was the killing of a goat. And apparently one of the goats had been pregnant and they had the womb out and there was some verbiage under that. Well, this was causing a lot of attention. But that wasn't evidence of anything other than killing a goat. Um, it, it didn't look like, it looked like the children were going, ew. <laughs> I mean, it looked like they were like, ah. Uh, it, 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 there were no hands in the photograph forcing the children over the goat. There were no adults, like, forcing the child toward the goat. Now, at this point, I had seen child pornography. I had seen what adults made children do in, in photographs and in video. There was no coercion of any kind in these photographs, and these children were reacting like children, like, okay, uh, you know. Uh. Yeah, so despite the fact that law enforcement at all levels really had it in for the group, they were um, hopped up on satanic panic and, you know, wanted to bust some Satan worshipers, you know, authorities in Florida did do their job, and they did eventually, you know, the wheels of justice moved slowly, but they eventually released the children to their mothers and released the adults to the world um, after like a month and a half in jail. Um, and, you know, and the investigation fizzled out. Really the only, and even uh, the the goats, um, which freaks everybody out when they hear about slaughtering goats, really it was just pictures of goats being killed on a farm and uh slaughtered and um it was agriculture even though it looked like satan worship or to satan worship rather to you know really really ex easily excitable cops um and that would have been about that would have been it but as athena's investigation wound down she learned that that a, a customs service special agent named ramon martinez had had seen the same evidence and wrote up wrote up this crazy documentation this uh memo to file it's called included it with the his report um claiming that he had seen the most batshit crazy uh elite child smuggling conspiracy documentation um and and filed it so he claimed that there were documents found at the finder's warehouse that revealed detailed instructions for obtaining children through purchase, trading, and kidnapping. He also claims that he found a telex that ordered the purchase of two children in Hong Kong to be arranged through a contact in the Chinese embassy. And he also claimed, like, the... the uh, And this is the claim that kind of stuck with conspiracy theorists all these years, that the CIA put an end to this investigation. So, I mean... In short, this guy was claiming that the finders were a CIA, CIA child trafficking front. And um, when Athena saw the report, she knew that she had to get down to the bottom of it. 
in this memorandum, the custom agents had claimed that he had in fact seen evidence of ordering children to be sent overseas, had seen child pornography, had, had seen evidence of abducting children, foreign people ordering children, that the finders had in fact were engaging in the sexual exploitation of children. And he had seen this evidence. And I said, no, I'm going to speak to him to find out what this is about. You have Metropolitan Police saying we didn't find this evidence. You have the FBI saying we didn't see this evidence. But you have this custom agent who says he saw the same thing and he saw this evidence. So I had him come to my office, I believe, or maybe it was at Metropolitan Police. Again, I don't remember the, the setting, but I took the memo in front of him and I went line by line. I said, you said you saw thus and so. I said, where is it? He said, well, I said, where is it? He said, well, it wasn't there. I said, so did you see this or didn't you see this? He says, I never saw it. I said, then why did you write this? He said, I thought I saw it. And I did that with every line which, in which he articulated that he had seen a specific item of evidence. And every one, I said, did you see this? He said, no. Then why did you write this? Because I thought I saw it. And in that, I was really angry about what the media did to these people. And then to have somebody, uh, an enforcement officer like myself, generate inappropriate paperwork, which... You know, at the time there was no internet, but you have, you've created this document claiming that this evidence existed when it didn't, which can be very damaging. So nobody told me to, but it was the right thing to do where I just went and go line by line to say it's not there because I knew somehow this case was going to come back. I knew that at some point this was going to come back from somebody somewhere saying something. And that was the last loose end to just say, no, it wasn't there. Now, the finders might have been a weird group of people. Um, they, they could have been Satanists. They could have worshipped Satan day and night. You know what? There's no federal law that says you can't worship Satan. So Athena was right. The customs document did come back to bite everyone in the ass. And when it did, it was largely due to Ted Gunderson. Um, and one question that comes up an awful lot when discussing Gunderson is how did he go from being like a well-respected leader in the FBI to this kind of shameless conspiracy salesman? And I've thought about it a lot. And really, one isn't that much different from the other, especially during the Cold War. Under J. Edgar Hoover's reign, the Bureau was a place where conspiracy theorists like Gunderson could thrive. And this was a time when the FBI was conducting black bag jobs, breaking and entering without a warrant. Illegal wiretaps, electronic surveillance, opening people's mail, and much worse, all with the approval of the White House. And this, these are just the stuff that Gunderson actually admitted to in public while he was still in the FBI. Um, and, and, you know, there's one incident from uh, Gunderson's career that I think really... Uh, highlights just how crazy that organization was. Um, 
In October 1970, Black Panther Party co-founder Bobby Seale uh, went to trial for the murder of a, a young Black Panther named Alex Rackley. Um, the incident in 1969, um, Rackley, who was in New Haven at the time, was accused of being an, a snitch for the FBI. Um, he was actually, the Black Panthers questioned him, they tortured him for two days, uh, getting him to confess, and then basically held like a kangaroo trial in the uh, New Haven Panther headquarters. Uh, and it's they actually taped it, and the tape's out there. It's really chilling to listen to. Um, and, you know, he confessed, and this illiterate 19-year-old kid was taken out into the woods and shot, and his body was dumped into the river, only to be found later. Um, it does not look good for the Black Panthers. But the fact is, like, no matter how much you agree with the Black Panthers' aims or goals... They were never, like, a real threat to the United States government. Like, they were never going to tear the government down as a, this revolutionary force that they had kind of propped themselves up as. Um, the FBI knew that. FBI also called them the most dangerous uh, group in the country uh, because they needed a villain. And being notoriously racist, a black villain was, was better. So they... Um, so they went to war on the Panthers, and we're talking about uh, in New Haven, for instance. Me uh, Gunderson had media contacts. He had like friendly journalists in the media who would print whatever he wanted. He could do propaganda. They had a network of informants. The um, FBI's informants in New Haven were... Uh, actually network of informants um the police actually had many more informants than the fbi office did but they you know the fbi was working closely with police um they also conducted illegal wiretaps uh gunderson was in on that they drove the panthers nuts basically and they created this climate of fear and paranoia where things like picking on an innocent man and killing him was possible um and, you know, Bobby Seale, the leader of the Panthers, claimed that he didn't know anything about what went down with Alex Rackney. But um, the FBI used this opportunity to, you know, claim that Bobby Seale did and put him on trial. And he was looking at the death penalty. So through creating this climate of fear and paranoia, the FBI was a able to actually like engineer the situation where they might be able to kill Bobby seal, which Hoover would have loved to do that. And, uh, Ted Gunderson was in the middle of all that. So, you know, the bureau, it wasn't beyond creating conspiracies to crush its political opponents. And, um, the stories that the FBI told about the black Panthers really weren't that much crazier than the, conspiracies that Gunderson would go on to peddle as a uh, darling of the conspiracy movement in the 80s and 90s. Um, and he he knew a uh, good conspiracy when he saw it. So when he came across the these customs documents from the, you know, from 1987, you know, that was just more proof that the CIA were kidnapping babies and that... Uh, mind control 
assassins were being created, and this was all happening under something called Project Monarch. Um, and if you don't know what Project Monarch is, I apologize, because you're about to, and um, <laughs> probably be better off. It, it's insane. And uh, this next clip from the old Disinfo TV show is going to discuss Project Monarch, and then Gunderson's going to share a little bit. My name is Bryce Taylor, and I'm a 48-year-old native Californian. Until 1995, I suffered from a debilitating condition known as multiple personality disorder. In 1985, I embarked on the long and tedious, painful road to recovery. Through years of therapy and deprogramming, I completely reintegrated my multiple personalities back into my uniform core self and through the grace of God I am alive today to convey to you my true life experiences. This account of my remembrances will be so shocking and amazing that you may feel that you've entered the twilight zone. Until 1985, really, I thought I was living a perfect life. I thought I had a perfect childhood. I thought I had, you know, perfect parents and family, and that my my family that I married was perfect. It couldn't have been farther from the truth. My multiple personality condition resulted from what I had first thought in 1986 was solely sexual and ritual abuse. But as I began to remember and heal more of my hidden past, I realized that ritual abuse was merely the mind control, trauma-based my pedophile father and others used to condition me for participation in Project Monarch, the Central Intelligence Agency's white slavery operation. I was an FBI agent for 27 and a half years. At the time of my retirement, I was the senior special agent in charge of the FBI Los Angeles Division. If you go back uh, 225 or 30 years ago, you have what we call the Illuminati that was established uh, in 1776. And the goals of the Illuminati, this is all very well documented, are to take over the world. One of the best ways of taking over the world is to control people's minds and to take over a country through the control of the minds. Uh, so what's happening in America, and based on my research and my interviews with numerous individuals, is that the uh, powers that be, the higher-ups, uh, the people in the Illuminati are using the satanic cults as a means and as a tool to condition individuals and to uh, make them victims of the mind control, MK Ultra mind control program. There's probably close to four million practicing Satanists in the United States alone based on my intelligence information. You know, if, if you get anything out of this wild ride that we've been on, uh, it's it should be that conspiracy theories are inherently political. They're used by the powerless to explain why they're powerless. They're used by the powerful to manipulate the powerless. And, you know, they're used by creeps like the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, or ISSTD, to, you know, to get rich off of uh, unfortunate people. Um, and Donald Trump, the paranoid-in-chief, launched his political career with a series of conspiracy theories. He claimed that President Obama was a foreigner aligned with terrorists, 
that members of ISIS were sneaking into the country as Syrian refugees. Ted Cruz's father killed JFK. Um, Pizzagate helped get Trump elected, and he's hoping that QAnon will keep him in office. Um, but this isn't just something that, that popped up in 2016. I recently spoke to uh, Jared Yates Sexton, who's a author and political commentator, and he has a new book out called American Rule. And uh, he was on my podcast, and you know we did it over Skype, so I recorded it. So I hope he's cool with me sharing a clip. Um, the episode is about how America is ripe for a fascist takeover. And, you know, we soon slid in to talk about conspiracy theories because turns out that's a prime part of all this. The Republican Party has been playing this game for decades because one of the things that ends up, happens, ends up happening, and I didn't realize this, is you actually see in the 1980s, the Republican Party kind of thought they were done after Richard Nixon, right? And of course they get forward, but you know, after that, they're kind of like, I, I don't, I, we're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really appeal to anyone. The demographics don't really work for us. And then they suddenly realize that with Carter, there's like this divide between Carter and like the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So they, they seal like the most like perverted deal between the Republican Party and the evangelical right. And if you actually like sit there and look right is it's not just religion that's the problem is is i was talking to mm-hmm. jeff charlotte about this the other day everyone's like oh they're just christians no they're not christians they're confederate christians mm-hmm. they have a religion that was based in the confederate states of america the idea that god is a white supremacist who has chosen white people to just mm-hmm. dominate everything right so they that group makes a deal with ronald reagan who by the way is there for tax cuts and like you know redistribution of wealth from the bottom up and it just goes and goes and goes for years. And by the way, what was Reagan? Reagan actually wasn't religious. He was actually really, really occultish. He was super mm-hmm. into like astrology and psychics and yeah. cults of power. Like one of his main uh, spiritual advisors was a guy named Manly P. Hall, who was obsessed with Atlantis and secret societies and all this bullshit. Well, what ends up happening is that the Republican Party, because they go with Reagan, they start getting weird, man. I mean, there's a reason why we had the satanic panic in the 1980s. Because Reagan was basically a mascot for religious nationalistic revivalism, right? Mm -hmm. He tells the country that America is perfect need to apologize for anything. There's nothing America can't do. God is on our side. We're mm-hmm. facing the evil empire. Well, guess what? When you start facing the evil empire and you're an agent of God, Satan's going to try and take you down. So instead of talking about crime and poverty and like inequality, we start talking about demons and possession and child sacrifice. Sounds familiar, right? So we end up getting at this point where the Republican Party throws in their lot with this. QAnon is, in many ways, a movement made up of the dregs of 90s conspiracy culture. It borrows from these dark urban legends that have been kicking around forever. Um, and it's using them to promote this like fringe, almost medieval form of Christianity that promotes things like the New World Order and the Satanic Panic and weaponizes them to strike out at people at odds with the uh, retrograde vision of religion and politics that you know, these Confederate Christians, as uh, Jared calls them, or Catherine Stewart calls them Christian nationalists. Um, 
whatever you call it, it's a cutthroat political movement that will use anything from the most bizarre Bible passages to uh, conspiracy theories about adrenochrome and monarch mind control to take and keep power. The finders and all satanic panic victims were canaries in the coal mine of this disaster that's happening right now in real time. We're living it. And uh, QAnon is the most outrageous symptom of it, but it's only one. And that's where we were going to end today. But as I was writing this on Thursday, Trump had his town hall and this next clip came up and it was just too good not to share. So don't All right, while we're doing. denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true so and disavow QAnon yeah. in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told I you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard. But I know nothing they about it. They believe it, it is if a you'd satanic like me to run by the deep study state. the subject. I'll tell you what I do know about. I know about Antifa, and I know about the radical left, and I know how violent they are and how vicious they are, and I know how they're burning down cities run by Democrats, not run Republican by Republicans. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts, and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. He may be Why right. not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. You Let me tell ask me you another thing. It. Let's waste the whole show. Uh, you start off with white supremacy. I denounce it. You start off with something else. Let's go. Keep asking me these questions. Okay. I but, do but have but one let, more. Let me, just, let me just tell you what I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia. And I agree with that. I mean, I do agree okay. with that. And I agree but with that. there's not a strongly. satanic uh, pedophile. I have no idea. I know you nothing about that. You don't know that? And that was my talk to the Satanic Temple. Every time I mention this group, I get shit. And I guess I'm supposed to explain what they are. You know, basically a human rights activism, free speech advocacy group that, um, you know, chose Satan as their mascot, essentially. They're not Satan worshippers. But whatever. I mean, either you, you know about them or you don't. Every It just seems like every time they come up in context of what I do, um, someone blocks me on Twitter or stops talking to me or accuses me of worshiping the devil or, you know, working for the conspiracy that is uh, the New World Order. And uh, none of that could be further from the truth. I'm sure you're probably aware. So, first of all, I want to thank Lucian Greaves, the uh, 
co-founder of the Satanic Temple. Um, before I did this talk, I interviewed uh, Lucian Greaves and Joe Matheny, and I just want you guys to know that even though you're not on this episode, um, that work went into my presentation, so I really appreciate the help. Also, Ed Opperman, the uh, digital forensic investigator and conspiracy uh, podcaster, he saw he saw that I was doing this and decided I was a, uh, you know, working for the devil. So he blocked me on Twitter. So after he, uh, <laughs> you know, after he made sure I knew why he was doing that. But he knew Gunderson and he talked to me about Gunderson too. So I guess I need to thank you, Ed. Thank you. Um, couple loose, loose uh, threads I kind of dropped that I probably should have included in the presentation the children were, it was alleged that the Finder's children were abused. Uh, Tyler Rabbit, who's doing the documentary on the Finder's, has spoken to a number of the children, and they all deny that happened. So it's not like we're just brushing these uh, accusations under the rug. There really is no merit to them. And um, the other thing, Ramon J. Martinez, Ray J. Martinez, who uh, was the customs officer who kind of injected the whole conspiracy theory um, narrative into the Finder's story. I've actually met him. He doesn't like to talk about this stuff at all. He won't do interviews, but I was able to track him down and talk to him on the phone, and he told me a bit about what happened in his story. And Tyler and I actually um, tracked him down in his hometown in Maryland. Again, he wouldn't go on the record, but he at least agreed to meet us at, at Panera and let me take copious notes and um, he's definitely an honest guy. He definitely feels that Satan was somehow involved in the Finder's story. His story doesn't add up. Now, it's it makes me wonder about the prevalence of conspiracy theorists in law enforcement. But at least he was he seemed to be a straight shooter. One thing that is interesting, though, is he claimed that the CIA shut down the investigation, which when Athena saw it in the report and it said, you know, an unnamed individual with the CIA or an unnamed source, and she laughed it off. She said, this does not, a this is not professional. This does not appear in, um, in government reports. You know, I mean, this isn't, this isn't like an off the record, uh, statement to a journalist, you know, a law enforcement official is not going to say an anonymous source, you know, so, so the CIA angle is shot down pretty quickly, but the FBI just did a FOIA dump with like from time to time they like release, you know, documents from FOIA requests that are of historical interest. And um, they did a dump last year. I think it was November 2019 with finders docs. And um, there's one doc that, you know, said that the CIA was keeping tabs on the finders, um, you know, some limited level. Didn't say that they were in charge or that they sh shut the investigation down, but they knew who the finders were, and um, it's fascinating to speculate about, but um, I guess we're going to leave that story for another time. Thanks again for listening. Check me out on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. Also, be sure to, I have two books. You can see them on Amazon or my website, LennyFlatley.net. Satan Goes to the Mind Control Convention is a, is a book that covers conspiracy culture. It's an anthology, but the first half or so, maybe the first third, is goes into detail about the ISSTD and the Satanic Panic and the Satanic Temple. And then also check out uh, The Finders, Lost and Found. It's an issue of my zine that's available on Amazon that goes into 
my first kind of initial investigation into the finders in some detail. In addition to the uh, investigation itself, there are some interviews with a finder who wants me to keep him anonymous and somebody who knew the group and, um, you know, a lot of good stuff. So check me out and um, thanks for listening and uh, hold tight. We should have another episode before too long.